0: Or listening to the running public
1: from marathoners to mud runners we all have the same goal get to the finish line faster that's right this podcast
0: is for you guys the running public Bracken do you always wear a flat brimmed hat when you wear a, when you wear a, a sporting cap
1: no But I guess more recently, yes, because that's what I keep receiving. Mm. You used to get regular running hats or whatever, and now everyone goes trucker, which isn't a good look on me because I have a tiny face. But
0: To match your hands. This
1: is what was sitting there on my desk.
0: Mm. Well, I do the really bent brim. I look... Mm -hmm. That's me naturally. I look like a a weirdo with a flat brim with my like thinner face. It just doesn't work well. That's what I feel too. But I had somebody tell me, I had somebody tell me a couple weeks back slid into my DMs and they said, "I got to change my hat. I look like a redneck with the way my bill is curved."
1: Mhm. And then all scuffed and tearing.
0: I'm far too well spoken to be looking like a redneck the way I wear my hat. I, no, I think home. that's the sweet spot. Nice and right in the middle. Yeah. See, when I, where I grew up, if you were a flat brimmed hat, I mean, this is me as a high schooler. So pretend I'm speaking as a high schooler. You were ghetto. That was the word we used. Like you were. Yeah. You were a thug. You were a thug. Like you were a flat brimmed hat and you were like, you walked, went your way to go around those people. Right. Like in my mind as a high schooler. Mm-hmm. So my culture was bent brimmed hat always. Is that how you grew up?
1: For sure. Yeah, uh, the 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 least curved it ever was, was rubber banded around a softball to get the curve. Okay, okay. Hardball or a rag ball was to get the firm, real curled curve, but the least bent it would ever be would be formed around a softball.
0: Mm. Okay, so you did the same deal.
1: I mean, I was curved to the point where when I was playing baseball, my parents would be like, I don't know if you can see out of that thing.
0: <laughs> so how did you transition to flat brim? I can't do it. I can't do it i'm not gonna do it
1: i didn't really i was given one by a sponsor back in the day and it was the kind where like you just can't curl it or it looks even worse Mm -hmm. and so i just wore that for a bit and i found that it actually protected my face from sun better Mm. so i didn't mind after races having it on and then in pictures it didn't look terrible but like only from straight on so i was like i'm okay on the podium wearing this thing and then that just seemed to be what I accumulated. So that that was really – there wasn't a whole lot more to that. There's not like a thought process. They just are in arm's reach usually, so I grab on. I
0: think if you were born, you're a little younger, the flat brim is just like what the kids did. But our generation, especially yeah. living in Wisconsin, and I was like, redneck. I was like, yeah, you're right. I totally am a redneck. I spent all my time out in the woods and on the lake – and doing all of those things that would be red necky, yeah. so it's true to my being. but I just see you there with a flat brimmed hat on. And I think I could never be that. I could never be that guy mm-hmm. with the flat brimmed hat. Just doesn't feel like me. So good job.
1: It's hard for me to make eye contact with myself in the <laughs> in the screen right now while wearing it.
0: <laughs> it's a little weird.
1: But if you think back, I, we asked each other what our dream jobs were mm-hmm. during uh, AMA or maybe someone else posted it, and yours was either full-time fisherman. Or host a hunting podcast or show. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think you are you are a redneck, and that's okay. And if in the whole you're too well spoken to be a redneck. No, that's perfect. And you can have a bit of rough in your life, but still like be someone you can bring home to your parents. That's perfect.
0: Yeah, the only thing I'm missing is a dip in my lip. I think, and I could round it all out.
1: Did you ever do that? Were you ever into that?
0: No, I was never into it. Like you know, back in college, or just after, and you're drinking, and somebody's like has a lipper and you're like give me that and then three minutes later i'm in the bathroom throwing up you mean that kind of dipping sure i did that mm-hmm. a couple times by mistake never gonna yeah. do that again what about you
1: no nah, it's just never had the interest there's several things where people are like how have you never tried that and it's because i i just didn't care to ever i'm someone that i think not i think i know it's always been very Helpful to my life, but peer pressure has very little effect on me. So I never wanted to do things. To and that sounds really douche. I never needed to conform, man. But I, I, I really didn't feel that ever. Like in high school, we were pretty heavy drinking school, and I just didn't have any interest to drink in high school. Mm. And a lot, all most of the people I lived with or or were buddies with smoked, and I never had the interest to smoke. Like it was there. It was available. Weed or cigarettes? Weed. Yeah. Not, 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 not cigarette. I mean, they're all athletes, but they're basketball players. So they're just like living up life, but I just didn't have interest in it. So if something doesn't interest me, I generally don't try it to sample it or find out. It's like, I'm curious about it or I'm not. And if I'm not, I'm all out. So I dipping was one of those things. I just had no interest whatsoever.
0: Oh, better for you. I, I was, cu- I'm naturally curious about everything. Not like, somebody like, Hey, want to smoke a cigarette? I'd be like <laughs> 16. Right. i would be like, I know I am not going to do that. Like for sure. Not going to do it, but I need to know what it's like. Yeah. And I did that with everything, nothing hard of course, but just like you, most of them are one and done. One time, the first time hmm. somebody offered me marijuana, all my friends smoked it, smoked it one time and I got so hungry. I came home and I had no money and I never, I've never done it again. Cause I didn't like how it made me feel, but um, I came home and I'm like mom I need to eat I want to go to Hardee's and I need to eat and I was like trying to keep it together and my buddy was driving me around right and so she's like yeah here's some money and if you can get me a small fry a diet coke and a, a plain cheeseburger and I'm like yeah yeah mom I got you I'll get you I'll get you that stuff remember she wanted a diet coke a small fry and a plain cheeseburger I came back <laughs> I got her a large Mountain Dew a large fry and a hamburger with everything on it. And I came back and she said, <laughs> she was like, Kirk, you didn't get one thing right. And I was trying to keep it together. And all I could do was laugh hysterically at the fact that I was so left of center. And then she's like, what have you been doing? And I was just, I couldn't even, I took over. So anyways, I didn't get one of her things right. I laughed uncontrollably and couldn't address the situation. And that was my one experience. Wow. Not one thing, Bracken. Got busted. That's that's good.
1: You know what I've never eaten never eaten at Hardee's in my life.
0: We had one right by my house. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I just I wouldn't know I assume it's like any other chain place, but I wouldn't know what it's like.
0: Yeah. Um should we like do on it? To- we this this is a
1: last little tangent before we go yeah. in. Brayden loves burgers. Loves them. It's his absolute favorite thing to eat, other than uh homemade nachos. Mm. We have homemade nachos once a week, minimum, and he requests it every night. But So when we travel, his thing is he has to try the burgers in these places. Ireland, they, they had this place called Apache Burger, and he loved it. He ate it probably like six of the 11 nights we were there. He'd say, can, can I go get a burger? And when we travel, our kids are not spoiled, I wouldn't say, but when we travel, whatever they're going to eat is generally what they get if that means we order out every single day for them, like our, when our families travel together, my parents and my siblings, we cook each night. And a lot of times we cook whatever is available locally at the market. And if the kids don't like it, that's fine. I'll go get them whatever, because it's like, whatever, we're on vacation. If I'm going to make our local haggis and whatever else, and you're not going to eat it, then I'll buy you an Apache burger every night. That's, that's like probably the most spoiled our kids get. So he loved Ireland burgers and then he was disappointed in the, the burgers in England and then in Sweden they have their most famous place is called bastard burgers and Brayden who I don't think you know this about him but is an extreme rule follower and has a very high sensitivity to inappropriate language and so he wouldn't say the name of the burger <laughs> joint so he ended up calling it b-word burgers but he wanted it every day, but he was so uncomfortable ordering it and being there. And their 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 burger they're known for is the Bastard Burger. So he just couldn't order. Did you make the kid order? Oh had to oh, order for him. Oh,
0: that is very endearing.
1: He would not do it. He, he would stand there. And if you made him, he would tear up and eventually walk out of the restaurant. He would not say that word. Not that we did that to him, but that's the level he is.
0: Where do you think he gets that from? You don't. You don't use cuss words.
1: I think probably both of us.
0: Yeah.
1: No, I don't. I don't. I don't cuss very much. And, and I grew up a very extreme rule follower mm. for a, you know my childhood. And Lisa's a a goody two shoes for a long time.
0: That's cute.
1: Anyway, Ayla is sitting there in the restaurant, going, "I'm a basher. I'm a basher. I'm a basher. I'm a basher." <laughs> <laughs> Singing these songs about it. No clue what it means. All she knows is that Braden says you shouldn't say it, and she can't wait to say it. And Braden's there in, like, physical pain, the fact that his sister is saying this. And we asked him about it over there. We're like, what, it, what does this word mean to you guys? Like, probably the same thing for you, but there's, like, there's no power to uh,
0: it here. Yeah.
1: And that's how most of their English word, they kept saying, English has no sway here. It's, we know what it means, but it doesn't mean anything to us. So mm. that's very interesting.
0: That's actually one of the worst words I thought uh, as a kid because I was seven and I was smashing monster trucks with my dad in the living room. And I just said, I'm going to smash you, you bastard. I don't know where I got the word from. And he goes, what did you say to me? <laughs> and he and I got in big trouble. He yeah. was like, you don't ever, ever say that word again. He was a real stern. When he reprimanded, I listened. So if you ever hear me, I've never okay. used the B word on here. I would dasn't do that. I was taught at a young age. That's a bad one. So, Braden, wow. I feel for you, man. That's one of my young childhood memories that stand out in my mind is calling my dad a bastard, smashing yeah. trucks, and then him telling me that was not okay. <laughs> That's yep.
1: good. I had one of those classic moments where kids are, kids are saying something on the playground, and you're like, what does that mean? They're like, ask your parents, ask your mom, and I, I did. Mm. We had the classic uh, soap in your mouth for that kind of thing. It only happened twice to me. Uh, but we uh, we only had pump soap. <laughs> And so you had to stand there and oh. open up your mouth while she spritzed soap into your mouth. Oh. It, was, uh, it was a different experience than uh, I didn't even know that bar soap in your mouth was a, a thing until I saw it in movies growing up because I thought everyone stood there and got the hand soap spritzed in your mouth.
0: Yeah, that sounds horrible. I
1: think statute of limitations on CPS has probably expired, but...
0: Yeah, I got
1: the wooden spoon. When we uh, Lisa and I were watching Game of Thrones... And Mira kept wanting to walk into the room to watch what we were watching, and Game of Thrones is just not good for I think she was four at the time to see. So we had to tell her, no, there's some inappropriate things in here, and they say some really bad things. And she got almost, like, teary-eyed. She's like, like, uh, do they say... And then she realized she had permission kind of implicitly to say Uh whatever her guess was at the worst thing they could say. She thought about it. She said, do they say things like... I don't love you. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, ho, ho, Mira, calm yourself. <laughs> In her four-year-old mind, the worst thing you could say to someone was, "I don't love you."
0: Oh, that's adorable. Like, I like that. I appreciate that about you. That's uh, wonderful. Like, yeah, they
1: they do say that, Mira. So you better you better head out now.
0: Get out of here. Yeah. Wow, to be the mind of a pure and innocent child. Uh, I miss those days Question number one Yeah, question number one I'm gonna shut <laughs> You see how the lights Hit me pretty hard On my face I'm gonna shut my door Really quick Yeah, you're gonna ride. It's
1: gonna be a silent elevator
0: Okay, it's not great But it's a little better, huh? No, I don't like this either This You're gonna have to Be patient with me, folks Be patient with me Three seconds Take your time Get it right We're leaving it here This is what I want I want someone right. in here. It's too dark in this cave otherwise.
1: Well, you have all the Q&A questions, uh, right? I think so. I have two. So I want to go first and last, and I want you just to plow through the middle.
0: All right. We're doing a Q&A today, folks. I, maybe, did you introduce that while I was away? That's what you're getting today.
1: No, it'll be in the title.
0: Yeah, people see the title. I forget that.
1: I assume so. I'm going to wet my whistle here. If I'm wearing a cutoff in a flat rim, probably should be drinking a
0: monster. All right, let's move on. Let's do this thing.
1: All right, so I got a question after the... Oh, this is kind of embarrassing. This is like answering questions about your ex who you cheated on your current with. But the episode Rich and I did, all about threshold training and double threshold. And someone asked right after they sent a message, they said, great episode and all, but why should any of us care if we can't double? And I think that's valid. So this might be a slightly longer answer, but I thought... We could address that first as like our big block of words coming at you, and then we'll get to the normal questions. You cool with that? Yep. Because it is a valid question. If double thresholds are so cool and life-changing for everyone, but I'm a working person with a family or whatever, and I can't double, what is the point for me? Should I even care about it? What would your answer to that be?
0: Why can't you double? Question one.
1: Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with it.
0: Two, what time do you get up? Three, what time do you go to bed? Four, where are your priorities at? Five, how much do you really care about your fitness? Six, you see where I'm going here. First I'd ask the question why. Uh wh- why why we're yeah. just uh why we're eliminating that as an option. Um I think your mind probably needs to expand. Mm-hmm. So that's my first question. Yeah, you can say I'm busy, I work forty hours or fifty hours a week and I got seven kids and, and yeah, I work a part time job. I get it. So um I know there's a real answer to this, but right away I just wanna know why. <laughs> Why Why are you closed off to this idea? Have you ever woke up at 3.30 in the morning one day a week to get in a double? Well, maybe you should. There you go. That's my first answer, which is no value other than, you know, STFU or whatever it is.
1: No, there is. This is why we're a good pair. This is why we're a good pair, Kirk, because – our minds go to two different places every time, and eventually we would get around to about the same type of answer. But you and I think about things the same way and very differently. That wouldn't ever be mine. I'd say, all right, if that's the pl- that's, if that's where you're at, that's where we're at. Let's move forward with what do we do now? And I think that's like the big differentiator between why people choose you versus me to to work with, hmm. is that I'm not like I'm not a motivator. I'm not a hard-ass. I'm not going to have a whole lot of conversations with you about, listen, you just need to figure this out. My my way of approaching most problems are, all right, if that's your reality, if that's what you're doing, fine. Let's find our best way to work around that then. Whereas people know that they're going to get some of those answers like you got, that Diane got from you. (laughs) You need an effing attitude adjustment. I've never told an athlete that in my life. Mm -hmm. There's a few I've had calmer... (laughs) Uh, softer, gentler versions of that. But that's rare for me and it's probably not as effective. Like, There's a time they need a Kirk in their life. I don't bring that. I'm not the in-your-face rah-rah coach. Not that you are necessarily right. that, but I immediately start thinking about all right, what's our way around this? And I start noodling that and you're sitting here like tell me why you can't. It just highlights our differences. I
0: like it. Well, no, of course, I, I, I'll help solve the problem, of course, but I think I just always.
1: Well, I know, and that's what I'm saying. We'll get there. We'll get there at the same place, but our initial reaction.
0: <laughs> Very different. You <laughs> go to a
1: different place than I do right off the bat
0: every time. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I mean, I could give. A, I guess I could give a real answer, but since I already gave my little spiel, why don't you? Where does your head first go?
1: Uh. Well. Well. First of all, I do want to say that there is no magic bullet in training plans. Hundred percent. There is no training plant on earth that can raise your ceiling. And I want to be very clear about that. This is the newest, you know, this is the hot new girl at school. She came in and suddenly the Norwegians are like, "Ooh, look at us. And everyone's like, oh, that's why you're so good. Well, it might be, it might not be, but it doesn't raise your ceiling. There is no training plant on earth other than performance enhancing drugs that can actually make you better than you were intended to be. That's it. There is none. All they can do is some get you closer to your ceiling or get you to your ceiling faster or for a longer duration, keep you near your ceiling than others. That's what training plans do and coaching styles and all of that. So there is no magic. It's just about which one's best for you for trying to hit your ceiling. Would you say that's pretty fair?
0: I agree with that hundred percent without question. Okay. Yep.
1: So is this magic? No, but... It's really good for a lot of people because it keeps them from staying away from their ceiling. Right, It keeps them away from the things that inhibit you from getting to your ceiling. And so the principles of it are what you bring down to if you can't double. What are double thresholds doing for these guys? It means they can do six threshold sessions or five for some of them per week without burning out or having injury because they're doing two thirds of a session in each session and they're doing it more frequently, which for them is AM, PM, two to three times a week. Well, what does that mean for you? That means... Instead of being a two-workout-a-week type person, you can be a three-workout-a-week type person in singles. You do slightly smaller workouts and do them more frequently. Or maybe you do half-workouts four times a week. And in, in that case, I would say you should probably have A and B weeks. Right. Where your A weeks, you have four mini-threshold-a-week workouts. And B weeks, you hit some bigger ones to drive bigger stimulus. But the principles of what these people are doing is what you need to apply to yourself. Not necessarily the duration or the frequency that the pros can use because they're pros for a reason. They don't have to work another job and their bodies are generally able to handle things that we can't. So that would be my why does it matter or what should you take from it? A little elevator pitch.
0: No, I think you're exactly on the right track. And where my mind went would be like, okay, well, can you finagle your schedule to do one threshold session after work on a Tuesday and the next one Wednesday morning before you go to work? And those sessions are 12 hours apart mm-hmm. um, or 16 hours apart. Can you just simply, if you want to experiment and this intrigues you, can you do, you know, just back to back on, even if it is in the morning, 24 hours apart, I'm going to do a threshold workout Tuesday morning and one Wednesday morning, then allow the appropriate recovery afterwards. I like that. Of course, holding back just slightly, obviously, in the first, as as you should. Um, I think there is probably ways around it to get close to, if not the same, stimulus um, without doubling. Yeah.
1: You know that double... That double on different days is intriguing because if you went PM workout on a Monday and morning workout on a Tuesday, it's not that much longer apart no, than doing an AM and PM workout on a Monday. Exactly,
0: Right. Barely. I
1: really like that. The, the key, my caveat with all of this is you have to stack your risk appropriately. And that means your second session early on when starting this and probably for the rest of your life should be the least risky session that you do. Mm. That means if you're doing 10 by three minutes in the morning and 10 by 90 seconds in the PM, you've reduced your, your duration down that you can hurt yourself in the PM, but maybe do it at 10% incline, Mm. maybe do it on the rower, maybe do it on the assault bike, stack your risk appropriately. If you're doing AM and PM or PM and AM at night, do your run. And then the next morning, when you wake up feeling crappy, do it on the spin bike. If threshold can be driven from any modality, do the non-risky modality when you're compromised. That's the second big takeaway from all this. There's a reason they do their long intervals in the morning and their short intervals at night. There's a reason for it. So follow the principles and apply it to your life.
0: I agree with that. I think we cracked that nut pretty well, pretty concisely, actually. I mean, we can elaborate. It's
1: shorter than I thought it would be.
0: But I think that's, that's what he or she probably can do something with. As is. Mm-hmm. That's how I'd experiment. I think with. so too. All right. I think there's no problem. But I think the evening, which a lot of people are in their morning routine, so that's a tough thing in itself to say, oh, wait till after work one day and hit it at night and then the next morning. But what do you think? At most, those are going to be 15 hours apart and oftentimes yeah and probably less 12 if you're getting done with work let's say you hit your workout at six o'clock at night and then you got to be up early enough to hit it by six o'clock the next day you're probably actually 11 hours apart from finish to start finish of workout one to start of workout two and what's double threshold training eight hours apart not even six so you're losing a little bit but eight still very viable
1: and i don't even know if that's losing and and i i do want people to know that this isn't there are two ways to do workouts there's where you do your full race warm up, and you know a 20 to 30 minute warm up, and then you do your full workout, and you do your 20 to 30 minute cooldown, or you can do the bare minimum approach to it. And especially if you're using a machine, you can get away with that. And this is what I was doing when I was first building back in and trying double threshold. My second threshold session was on the skier or the assault bike. Do you know how long it takes to warm up for an assault bike 60 60 workout?
0: Not very long. <laughs>
1: How long does it take you to get dressed?
0: You can kind of work right into it.
1: You can really not hurt yourself very easily. You could jump into it if you wanted. You don't have to. You could take five to 10 minutes to get ready. But my PM sessions, because I was fitting them in in what we would call our no-fly zone in our family, which is 5 to 9 PM, we try not to do anything other than family. Mm. I was doing this at like 7.30 or 8.30 at night. So I would go downstairs and I had to be done and back upstairs in 20 minutes. That's the window I gave myself. And I was doing it on the rower or I was doing it on the assault bike or doing it on the skier. And I could get the entire thing done in like 12 to 18 minutes. That's not really what people consider doubling. But every single second I was moving was working at a very specific zone that was going to help my engine. So doubling doesn't have to look like two different 60 minute sessions. Maybe getting over that and just saying anything above a single session is more than I used to be doing and will change my fitness. That's the attitude to use.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, I assume on a set, we all follow a Monday to Saturday traditional schedule or a a Tuesday to Sunday traditional schedule. Like, so be it if Sunday has to be your double threshold day. And you need to readjust the rest of your week because Sunday is the only day that works for you and the kids and the free time and all of that. Like there's probably – if you're having strong enough curiosity where there's a will, there's a way. But yeah, a lot of workarounds I think.
1: Kids really screw up people's training styles because they have their own competitions. you got to drive there and do this. But my family had four kids in traveling sports, all-day gymnastics meets, soccer tournaments, baseball tournaments, and I have – vivid memories of my parents working out in between games Mm. you can do that that's a thing you can do i love that just you you don't have to wait until you get back to the house
0: well they're at practice you're running around the field or doing whatever you need to do instead of sitting in your car
1: yeah you got 30 minutes in between sessions yep i mean we used to travel with this we went to thanksgiving one year and two different camping trips with a spin bike in the trunk of our van disassembled it's kind of weird Mm -hmm. but at the same time if that's how you get it done that's how we'd pull the spin bike out you'd have it assembled in two minutes and now you can get a a 20 minute session and now you still have eight minutes to stop sweating before the next game starts there are ways around just about everything if you want it to be
0: i like it what else do you want to add to it
1: nothing that's already more than i thought we'd say
0: well my first screenshot here has two questions on it and i don't know If we answered the first one, I don't think we did. So I'm going to jump to the first one and then maybe get to the second one here. And I don't know who this is from, which is perplexing because I like to say who they're from. But um, I live at sea level. Is signing up for a 50K that starts at 4,400 feet something people people regularly do? It has roughly 4,500 feet of elevation gain and loss. The race is July 1st. I would be flying from Alaska to Montana two days before the race. So not much time to acclimate. Also, this would not be my goal or a race. It would be used as training for a hundred miler a month later. You're set. In fact, I see that as a really good last stimulus.
1: Yeah. The first and last sentences gave you permission to do it. First one being, is this something people do? Yeah. Yeah. Every single sea C le- C level, sea C level, sea level worker, outer liver who travels to altitude does this. This is what you do. This is what Kirk and I yep. do. That's, this, that's what you do. And then B- this is not my a race. I'm training for a hundred mile or later. Absolutely
0: Mm -hmm. do it. Yep. And the longer the race distance, the less altitude really affects you. Um, really in my opinion, like the the more it's going to keep you in aerobic. So like you have a fighting chance of going out there and still performing somewhat well, even if you're not acclimated and it's only 40, it starts at 4,400 feet. So you're not dealing with extreme altitude to start with. So like, that's also factors in, um, and I really think the last big stimulus is – I like to program for my athletes four weeks out, double days, split double, whatever. And then – so four weeks out is actually mm. pretty good timing I think for that um, that stimulus as well if that is the exact amount of time out from your 100-mile uh, A race. So, yeah, green light. you want to spend more time on that? Uh, just
1: a little bit. I, I want to pick up where you said starting at 4,400 feet means that you can't get high in this race. I mean, 4,400 feet is high for someone who lives in Alaska, which most people are in double-digit elevation in Alaska. But you, I think they also said there's only 4,500 feet of vert in the race. Now, that's a lot of vert. But over the course of 31 miles, that's, that's under 150 feet per mile average.
0: They're probably not breaching 5,500 feet ever in that race of elevation. No,
1: even if you did half of that in one and got up to what? If you did a 2,500-foot climb you're still only just getting to 7000 right. which is where it gets starts to get tough on people is that 6 to 7000 range 5000 does get tough on you but it's not the type of like hate your life altitude so i think you yeah you like you said you're going to stay in that 4500 to 6000 foot range most of the time probably 5500 yeah. range the most of the time so it's not going to be truly brutal but what it will do is altitude amplifies how tough everything is uphill pace it becomes a whole lot worse. Flat ground pace becomes a whole lot worse. Uh, eating and drinking can be a lot tougher on people, people at altitude, a 50 K at altitude can get you into the back half of a hundred mile experience in terms of pacing and difficulty of fueling. So I think it's actually an ideal way to prep for a 100 because in a regular 50 K, you're not going to run into some of the same issues and ramifications of getting things wrong early on where altitude it exposes it quick. So I think it's probably your best case tune-up rather than maybe not a good idea.
0: Green light is what we're saying. Green light. You've been green lit.
1: We're green, Corbin.
0: Their second question. um, Aqua jogging question for a calf injury. Hmm. Deep end with a waist belt and no contact with the bottom or shallow end without waist belt. Obviously, contact at the bottom. Aqua jogging feels very unnatural. I know this was talked about in a prior episode when Bracken had an injury. I swam for forty five minutes, then did about ten to fifteen minutes of aqua jogging, attempting both types. Hmm. Um,
1: I have very specific feelings on this. You do?
0: Yeah, I am um, gonna. Oh well, I am gonna go no contact. By the way, that's my specific feelings on it. Yeah, because if you are trying to heal an injury, you can still push off the ground pretty hard in a swimming pool. And I actually think you can get more aerobic work done when you're free-floating, working on knee drive and through the range of motion. Um, in the pool, it's like pretty forceful you're pushing off of the ground. So I think absolutely stay on the deep end just from an injury management standpoint. Um, are you going to disagree with me here? Maybe. Could we get a disagreement, Bracken? No. Ah.
1: No, I don't think I don't think there's any worth to any risk in rehabbing an injury, especially something like a calf calves are super touchy and they don't go part way. Like if you tweak it, you're screwed again. You have to start over. I mean, they can go part way, but it doesn't feel like it. It's not like an ankle where if you've rolled an ankle and then you tweak it again, you're going to be okay again the next day. No, you tweak the calf again, even a little bit, and you're starting back over weeks of rehab. So the biggest thing I have taken away from all of my injury rehabs is that you must have a gradient built in. You start with the zero risk activity, and you do it longer than you maybe need to, and then you progress to the second stage, and then the third and the fourth, and you add as many stages along the way as possible. That way, not only do you you mitigate your risk, but you arrive at the next stage, and this is very important, totally confident that you can handle the next stage Mm. because you're almost bored by the previous stage. And so you never get to the point where you're overreaching without being sure because you know what the next step is. And so that means you start with no contact deep in the pool, and then you move to barely grazing the ground with your belt still on in the shallowish end at like chest deep. And then you move from chest down to nipples, down to sternum, down to bottom of rib cage, down to belly button, down to waist. You make it so just excruciatingly gradual. That you always know you're more than prepared for the next step and then you have no chance of regression and you're confident in your body moving forward Because even if you are healthy, if you're not confident totally in your foot plant You're going to plant weird and something else is going to manifest because of it So knowing that you're totally sound before moving to each stage is crucial to leg recovery and so you have to follow that. Those are my very specific in-your-face feelings about this.
0: I agree. Next question. That was a good answer. Nailed well, it.
1: I'm fiery about that one, Kirk.
0: This one this this one is a bit of a novella here. Um, that's what I call when you get like a long text in your inbox and you open it and you're like, oh. Once in a while, you get one from an athlete, right, Brack? And you've been there. Donald Nettles wrote me a, a long one, so bear with me, folks. I debated whether or not to put this in there or not because it, you're going to have to listen to me talk for a minute or two, um, but let's make the – we'll make the question. Are you going to read the whole thing? Well, I, I don't know what else to do with it. Question, question, long, answer, short. How's that sound, Bracken? All right. I've been running now for a, as a sport for about 10 years on a consistent basis. Had some injuries in 2019, 2020 to the ankle. And knee in 2022. I'm going to paraphrase here. I started doing the running public training plan in June last year, but it wasn't at 100% due to still having knee issues. Um, I picked up following the plan fully when the doctor gave clearance at the end of October. So basically, he's been following the plan 100% since October, he says. My question is, I feel that my running has vastly improved. My endurance engine is the best it has been in years. I can run harder for longer, but speed-wise still slow compared to where I was prior to injury example when I got full clearance I did a 5k time trial and ran 2546 tested again uh three months later 2433 and then got it down to 24 basically the same again three months after that okay as you can see my time wise has been about the same but I have been able to push heart rate higher as I feel more comfortable during the run. I also retest this on the same 1.3-mile loop trail, uh, trail near where I live for consistency. In comparison, prior to injury in March of 2022, my 5K time was under 20 minutes, and fastest time in 2019 was 19 minutes. So he's saying he is four minutes slower right now. So I could go on. I have a whole other paragraph here okay my goal for the year is to compete at spartan palmerton super and spartan tri-state Beast. so i do a lot of incline work on the treadmill and trails but flat i just can't seem to push paces anymore and i'm not sure why i can't get close to even a seven minute mile again but i feel like i can run but i can run faster as i stated i'm overall endurance is stronger i can hold paces longer than i could before uphill running is more solid but speed is not there he gives me some more examples so basically, I think he's wondering on advice to break through in his shorter stuff, even though he feels like his endurance and threshold running is better. Let me sum it. There was more there, but what do you think when you when you hear something like this?
1: This is the kind of question where I'm just skeptical when I hear it that I'm not seeing the full picture. There's just there's missing components here that I can't put my finger on. Is your uh, your previous 5k, was that on the same 1.3 mile loop or was this somewhere else? And is there a chance that that wasn't a 5k? Is your weight drastically different? Are you actually not putting in the workouts you think you're putting in? Like if you look back on your training plan, are there more gaps than you'd expect uh, because you did drop your fitness rapidly. You went 50 seconds faster in the first three months, which is what you'd expect to see. Correct. Day one of cleared of injury, back to back to sport. He From there, three months later, he dropped 50 seconds. That's what you'd expect. And then he dropped 20 more seconds three months later. Again, that's about what you'd expect. And then seems to have stagnated, which is, again, kind of what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. But for that to be four minutes slower than he was pre-injury is baffling. So... Uh, Don Nettles, you said? Donald, yep. Donald, uh, I don't want it to sound disrespectful, but I, there's some piece to this equation that I'm, I'm not seeing, and, and I, maybe you're not seeing it either, but I think you have to look holistically at everything and find what is different from pre-injury because something's different.
0: Yeah. That's a head scratcher kind of, cause I do believe in the training we prescribe. Obviously he is noting benefit. Like he does feel like he can run longer at faster pacing, but obviously we're coming back to the 5k. But honestly, in my opinion, if you can run faster for 2 hours, I feel like you should that should correlate to a faster 5k as well. I feel like they still go hand in hand pretty closely. Um so yeah, so I actually had more questions for you, Donald. I'm sure I'll get written in after this, but it's like, "Well, I don't know how old are you? Um since 2019, did you have any big training gaps? Like we know what's happened since these recent injuries." Like, did you take substantial, like how much of your time between 2019 and now has been completely off running? You know, coming back can be a longer process for some than others. When you were off, how on top of your cross training were you, or did you let go completely? Um, if there's any other external factors were missing, um, I think I have more questions than answers because it's not like I tell you to go and completely change your training. I wouldn't tell you, Yo, you know what? You need over speed training. We need to go rip 400s. No problem. Let's get it done. We need to run faster than 5K pace all the time. That's not the answer. The answer is still going to be LT or threshold work. um, The majority of the time with some stuff faster than race pace sprinkled in there, which we prescribe. So um, you'd be a really good candidate for a consult call with one of us, to be honest. Um, That would help dissect a little more thoroughly, not to pump ourselves, but – I think a few more questions would need to be answered.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I agree with you that for most people, if they get better at longer events, they're going to get better at shorter events. If you don't, which I haven't always, I usually get about the same, but I might be two to 3% slower than my PR or 5% slower than my PR, but not four minutes. So while some people would say, no, you're not going to get faster at a 5k by getting better at a marathon. No, but you're going to be in range Mm -hmm. of where your best is. And you would need to sharpen down to that. But four minutes isn't sharpening down. That's that is a lifetime apart when you're talking about nineteen minutes to twenty-three minutes. That's those are different universes. So if we this were an athlete I was working with or potentially working with, that I would say go do the things that I would have requested that athlete. And that would be I would need to see the year of training that led up to the nineteen minute five K and then the five months that led up to this. Maybe five months just isn't enough. Now, four minutes still seems drastic. I'd want to see your, your weight before and after. And I would want to see the GPS file of that 5K and then the one you're retesting on, just to make sure that we're not comparing apples to oranges here. Kirk and I worked with a lot of people who thought they ran a 5K, you know, the 2.9-mile race. And then they ran another one and ran slower, and it was a 3.22-mile race. There's a big difference between those two. So, those would be the three things I'd want to see. Your body before and after, your training before and after, and the race course before and after. Those are the easiest things where something could be, you know, way out of bounds.
0: Yeah, I think it's a valid question Mountains. and very I mean, I see why you're wondering what you're wondering and I think this is no fault to you yeah. or train the training or anything. I think this is I'd be wondering the exact same dang thing if I were you. So, this is very valid. It's more like let's start splitting yeah. some hairs. And to figure out, let's let's uncover surface layer and let's dig a few questions in to see if we can make more sense of this before we start firing off answers.
1: Yeah. And then the final thing to do is, are we just looking at the wrong number? Do you have any other before and after numbers? Like lactate threshold or aerobic threshold or 10K or half marathon. If every single thing else is improved from where you were except for this, then you kind of just say, I'm not training for a 5K anyways. It's weird, but I'm not going to worry yeah, about it. Yeah, fair. Because if you truly are stronger everywhere else, then maybe it's just it's just a weird anomaly and don't worry about it for now. And then six months from now, you're going to go run a 5K in PR. But I don't know. Strange. There's something missing. Something missing, Don.
0: All right. We're going to move on from that one. This is from Faith4033. Hi, Kirk and Bracken. I have two Q&A submissions. I love your podcast. It's been super helpful even as a newer runner. Uh, thank you, Faith. So question one. I work in surgery three days a week where I may be standing, but stationary for a long time. Would compression socks be helpful for lessening the leg fatigue? We'll start with that.
1: Yeah. Not leg fatigue probably, but it might help with lower leg swelling Mm -hmm. and lower leg swelling can negatively impact your ability to hit a workout afterwards. Yeah. So I don't think compression solves fatigue. I'm not one of those people. I don't buy that, but I do believe that it stops, stops lower leg Mm -hmm. swelling. If I travel, now I travel. I've talked about this before, but we just did again international travel to and from Sweden. I wear my Injinji to the knee compression socks, individual toe compression and compression all the way up. And when I travel with and without those, there is a drastic difference in how much swelling I have in my ankles and feet and toes. Even just wearing regular compression socks versus Injinji, my toes change in size. So that absolutely you can fix, but I don't think you'll feel fatigue much different what do you think
0: uh no i don't think that they're going to be helpful for lessening fatigue whatsoever if you notice your legs and feet swell up at the end of the day then yes i think just keeping a healthy amount of blood flow and lack of uh water retention i that would serve its purpose especially if you run after work or something um, where that, doesn't have, that swelling doesn't have yeah. time to go down, um, I'm going to just say no, not at all. It doesn't help with leg fatigue whatsoever. Your bones are still going to ache. Your corns are going to still hurt. Your arches are still going to ache. Yep. Your legs are still going to feel the way they're going to feel. But if you're swelling, then I agree with you, and then I think it would be a worthwhile uh, experiment. Question two?
1: I'd just like to say I feel for you. Yeah. Occupations that require you to stand, specifically stationary, are very, very difficult on your body. Very difficult. And so you have to become the master of micro movements, just tensing up little things and letting it go tiny, tiny. Just become the master of those micro movements, and that can save you a little bit, but it's kind of just your cross to bear.
0: Most fatigued I ever remember my legs feeling was working at Dennis Sports Shop. I worked behind the counter in high school and early college, where you just stood there, and those legs would just ache for like 12, eight to nine hours on cement. Standing there, and it's like people think walking mm-hmm. around all day is is bad. Try standing still all day; that is way standing. worse. So yes, I feel for you. Question two: If I'm taking an off season over the Texas summer and want to cut running down to three times per week, is a tempo run, easy run plus strides, or short intervals at the end, and a long run adequate to maintain fitness or improve a small amount? So a tempo run. Yep a long run, and then a quality short interval session. Yeah, You think that's enough to maintain fitness?
1: Yeah, I think that's enough. Yeah, it depends for how long, but I don't see why not.
0: I mean, if if your plan is to run ultras in the fall, I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. But if you want to stay fit enough to go attack and improve your 5K later on or run some trail races in the fall or OCRs that aren't, longer than like 90 minutes i think you could probably get away with it but i think you're going to need more time on feet if you have long stuff planned in the fall and winter i think you will backtrack um but i think if you're racing less than an hour i think you could probably make it work Uh
1: and it really depends what's your frequency now if you're running four days a week now you're not going to degrade a whole lot if you're doubling up and running 14 times a week right now three is probably going to see a big reduction yeah so i wouldn't do it for too long
0: but you can do that just fine. Listen, I've built a career on three days of running at very, very large periods of time. And then cross training, of course, in between. Even if it's five days a week total, only two cross training sessions and three runs. I've run close to some of my best performances yeah. off of that schedule and it can be done.
1: You know what? In terms of what we invest in ourselves as athletes or people who want to exercise it is a very, very small investment to buy a standalone air conditioner and put it in the room you're going to work out in. Even if that's a garage, that's a small investment for $500 or less. You can get a quality unit that will cool down a, I don't know, 200 square foot room or less. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot cheaper than the daily supplements that most people do monthly or gym costs or whatever. So I think it's, if I lived in the South, I absolutely would have an air-conditioned room so I could just get my work done indoors. Mm -hmm. It'd be non-negotiable for me. It's a small investment.
0: So you guys don't have air conditioning in your house, do you?
1: We have uh, window units because our home is so old, there's no room for duct work unless we did a mini split system, which we haven't committed to yet. I am. So I actually just put them in yesterday, Kirk, because it got to 83 here.
0: Yeah, you did. got to 86 here yesterday, and they say 88 today. Which is insane, one upper I know. But then it gets like we're high of like forty on Sunday. It's ridiculous.
1: We might have snow next week.
0: Yeah, I saw that. It's weird. I know that's how it goes. Uh, Luis Bartildes says, "Hi there, love the podcast always and have love the podcast always and have a two question for your Q and A. There's two parters here. We'll start with one. One, I follow a Monday to Sunday training plan, so seven days." Normally training days are every day except for Tuesday and Thursday when when is rest. I can only train Monday to Friday so I cram all training between those days and active rest on the weekends. So far I have been hitting my paces for the most most part. Do you think by doing back to back quality I won't progress? I try to do an easier day after a quality one but sometimes it doesn't work due to my work schedule. For example, if I do a speed session followed by a threshold or long quality run the next day, would I still benefit from the speed session?
1: They don't cancel each other out. They're just less effective if you don't recover in between them and they cause just lingering fatigue. So there is no cancellation effect in fitness. If you can get it in and you can maintain it, you're fine. But whenever possible for long-term sustainability, yeah, it's better to split them up.
0: Honestly, I'm just confused by the wording. Okay. She says normally training days are every day except for Tuesday and Thursday when is rest. Then she says I can only train Monday through Friday and Saturday's active recovery. Which means she's not training over the week or sun the weekends are active recovery. So
1: she's training Monday, Wednesday, Friday.
0: That's what I'm gathering by this. That's how it's worded. Yeah.
1: Let's answer it as we think. Other people would be, which is I can't work out on the weekends. I can only do it during the week, and I run out of time to get it all in. Can I just do them all back to back?
0: Um, Okay. Did you want to continue off of what you started?
1: Only to say this is the tough one. Like of all the scenarios that we deal with working with athletes, to me, this is the most frustrating one to deal with are people with – restricted schedules that can only have X, Y, and Z that all the rest don't exist. And you have to work within the confines of this because something has to give. And so then you have to become, again, the master of, instead of micro movements, micro workouts, or you have to find where can I devote something big to if I'm going to not be able to work out on Saturday, Sunday, no matter what, can I do something massive Friday? But yeah, the back to back quality days, it just starts to wear on you after a while.
0: I mean, I would, for some reason, I would prioritize the faster work day one, like she's sugge- she's outlining, like make sure if you if your legs have some spring in them to use it day one. And then if you're a little dull for threshold or longer tempo effort type stuff day two, so be it. So I think your ordering and your thought process is correct and how you're choosing it. But, um, I don't really know I, your, her last question. Would I still benefit from the speed session? That's her last question. And the answer to me is yes. You would still benefit yes. from the speed session. So the answer is yeah, yes. Yeah, you would. I think we just leave it there. But I'm very confused about your daily actual yeah. schedule, the way this was worded. So
1: I'm going to say the same thing that I'm, I said earlier. If you have to stack things, do the least dangerous thing second. Yeah. So like you said, do the fast stuff first. And if you've got to do threshold stuff later, well, do it uphill.
0: Yeah,
1: That's safer. Do it on a machine if you have to. That's safer. Maybe I'm just injury- uh, averse or have it on a high, high alert in my old age, but there's just no need to risk things for our daily pursuit of happiness.
0: I really like what you just said about, it. okay, well, if you do quality session on Tuesday, that's uphill, go flat Wednesday or do the opposite of of vert or flat. And I think that's a really good combo there where you might be able to yeah. engage a little different musculature and use a different stride anyways. And I like that idea yeah. a lot. If you're going to do that.
1: Flat and fast back to back scares yep. me. <laughs> yeah,
0: me too. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to your answer to this next question.
1: This is the person or you're saying
0: that? Well, I'm saying that on her, on my behalf after reading her. Question. Okay. Louise asks, Louisa asks, do you think it would be stupid for someone with very thin arms to wear their watch on the upper arm? By doing so, would the heart rate be more accurate <laughs> than on the wrist? Asking for a friend. And then she says in parentheses, extra small armband heart rate monitor is too large for my arm. Thank you. Go nuts, Bracken. I'd like to hear this one. I've never been asked anything remotely close to that.
1: I have never. No. But I did wear my very first GPS watch on my upper arm because that's where it was, I think, designed to go. It was a Garmin unit that was about three inches long. Yeah. Do you remember those old bad boys? I do,
0: yeah. They were rectang- or square, rectangle
1: Rectangular, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bulky. And I wore that on my upper arm. So I suppose I've done this. Uh, I think what she's saying is that the uh, the armband extra small straps of like a Wahoo Ticker Fit or the Polar OH1 or something like that that are designed to go on your upper arm. Even the extra small ones are too big for her arm.
0: Listen, go online and look up Z-O-N-I, Zoni, and their entire strap is Velcro. You could tighten it around your finger if you had to because everything connects to everything. Okay. And it's not made for the Wahoo Ticker Fit. I like that. But that's what I use. You can shove it through. Find a new strap first of all, because your watch ain't gonna be accurate on your no matter where it is on your arm. Sorry, not sorry.
1: I can just see that though. It resting above your elbow bone. No, I can see it where your radius and ulna come together up there. Just <laughs> be easy to check. I could. <laughs> I, I kind of like I it, <laughs> <laughs> except except in order to get a good reading, you'd have to wear it on the inside down right. here. So I've got a watch right here. You'd have to wear it. We're gonna need video on this, Ian Floyd. You'd have to wear it down here to get a good reading. I could read that, but that would be a pain. That would be a pain to read
0: if it was right here. You could just look right. Who's t- gonna help you put that on, Louisa? I use a tape like this.
1: I uh-huh. <laughs> that baby in there. So if it was on the outside, you could read it well. But you're must you're gonna get a worse reading. Here's where you're gonna look at all What's that. All that veins—you can just pop that baby on here, but you can't read it.
0: I got more veins than that. Those are child's. We're not comparing veins right now. I kind of want to compare veins right now. <laughs> not, I bet you these are going to look scrawny. Oh, I don't. What do you think? Not much better than you. All right, we're ch- we're children. Let's stop this.
1: <laughs> anyway, like we said, the Zony or uh, the other one is the um, uh, what's it called? Oh my goodness. Why can't I think? Maybe I'm Louisa. still uh, my zone. The my zone has a chest, uh, upper arm, and wrist strap. And I wonder if the wrist strap won't also fit your upper arm. So either that Zony or my zone, something will fit you there, and then you can keep your your watch down an easily accessible and attachable point. But I really like that idea for some reason.
0: I like it, Louisa. You could take some black electrical tape. Completely detach your armband heart rate monitor and just electrical tape it around your arm. It's going to work. When my strap broke, I used duct tape. It worked great. I used duct tape for a couple of runs. Yeah, it was annoying, but it worked. Uh, watch. Heart rate monitors are garbage. Don't even look at your heart rate, whether it's on your wrist or your arm, Louisa. No. I don't care. I won't use that data with any of my athletes because it's too inaccurate. So I think we're talking about something that is amusing, but I don't think it matters. That's what my stance is on it. And get yourself some electrical tape. It's been my it. favorite question today. <laughs> it's a good question. Uh and I mean, try it, sure, but I still don't think it's going to be accurate.
1: Yeah, I've used rubber bands before. Ooh. On a watch strap that broke. I've tried paracord. Like you can use anything. Mini skinny little bungee cords wrapped through there. You can DIY any sort of strap you want. But yeah, do that the 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 moral of the story is don't use your watch for heart rate. Yeah, that's it. Use a real device for that.
0: You said that right up the top.
1: Zony or my zone.
0: I know zony's you can velcro that the whole way around. And you could probably cut it to shorten it if it's too long. No problem.
1: I actually recommend that anyways, because the only issues I've ever had with a heart rate strap is that when super saturated with sweat, or if you have to get in and out of water during an event, the the strap can fail not all of because they have a limited contact with that. If you get something with just bigger stretches of velcro and it can attach anywhere, it's just more secure. That's a good point.
0: Okay, Jennifer Childs says, "Well, hold on." Okay. Hi guys. Love the suggestion of giving an overview of the training plan. It's all, oh, we already did that. Okay. Also, love the idea of a training Tuesday on hill running. I don't have a treadmill and am fortunate to live in Victoria, BC, where I can run hills year-round. My goal this year is to improve my uphill running, and I have not had any wear and tear issues from too much downhill yet, but plan to do lots of my workouts on hilly terrain this year. Questions. What ratio of downhill to uphill running is ideal? Will I max out on downhill gains and start getting wear and tear before taking full advantage of all the uphill benefits? So if I'm chasing a lot of earth, what goes Mm. up must come down. Is that going to be a problem?
1: This is a good question. Mm -hmm. And early on, yeah, it's going to be a problem. You can handle way more uphill than downhill early on. But the downhill gains, so to speak, don't stop at fitness. They build into durability and then into technique. You don't need the skill of running in many forms. Downhill is one that there is a significant skill that gets built up over time. A lot of people that get better at downhills just get better at actually the act of running downhill. It's not a fitness thing. It is the act of running. Getting better with their feet, with their their hip angle and their upper body angle, how they're leaning into the hill. There's so much more that cannot be quantified by fitness. So I actually would just worry about how much you can physically handle. That's your upper limit to start with, and then you stay there. You keep increasing as you can handle more. So I wouldn't worry about, ah, am I just gonna stop getting better at downhills? Because no, you're you're really not for a long
0: time. And then I think to speak on like the, am I gonna either cap out on my downhill potential or like, end up hurting myself from all the downhill pounding when uphill is very kind on the impact front. Um, you can just, you know, you can't be ripping every day, you know, you're ripping once a week, that's probably enough. And then the rest, um, you're just, you're managing your effort downhill and making sure that we're not creating huge, huge impact every day. Cause that can be very damaging. So I just say like temper your enthusiasm most days on your downhill, you know, maybe flow the downhills one or two days a week crush the downhills once a week. And then everything else is just a nice little pitter patter where you're enjoying it. You're not worrying about aerobic stimulus. You're just getting down, working on the skill work component that Bracken said. Um, But I don't think, I don't think that you should even worry about that factoring in unless you have any sort of overuse injury start to pop up, then you might want to start picking ways to reduce your downhilling. But I don't, I don't think you should worry about it until you maybe need to. I think you can just wipe that Mm -hmm. off of your radar for now.
1: I agree with that. Part of the reason Kirk and I talk about big, big, big swings of the hammer in our downhill work is that we do not have access to mountains or hills all the time. And so we have to be tactful with how we use it. The more often you get to run downhills, the less you ever need to rip. Because half of the ripping of the downhill is to build up the tolerance. Well, you get to build it up through the daily effect of running it. So no, you get to do a lot more flowy downhills than we do because we only have so many steps we can take downhill and so we have to maximize those steps quite often. So rest assured that your quantity will make up for the quality that sometimes we preach on here. You don't have to rip very often. You really don't if you have access to hills constantly.
0: That's a really good clarification, actually, an angle I didn't think of, but you're right. Longest downhill, even within an hour of my house, takes me a minute to get down if I'm pounding hard. That's all I have access to, right? (laughs) And so, yeah, we got to rip, and that's why we talk about swinging there, but it's different for us than you with access to mountains. And so our rules don't always apply to everybody when you're in the mountains all the time. So, yeah. Next
1: one. Yeah. If we flow our downhill, we just took 62 steps. Right. (laughs) That's not a lot of skill work.
0: Exactly. Um, Okay. Uh, Devin McKenzie says, hey, I have a potential Q&A question. According to my Coros, my cadence has been anywhere from 148 to 152 for the last year, which is extremely low. How do I raise my cadence? A little background. In high school, I was a five flat 1730 guy. For my ACL senior year and now a couple years later still struggling to get back to that and cadence seems to be an issue I used to be able to run 7 flat and my legs felt like I was jogging and now 7 flat feels like my legs won't turn over anymore. Crack that nut
1: Okay Um, I think you gotta force it I think early on you need to do the metronome thing or you need to be counting your steps or you need to and this is this is one of the only times I really really recommend this you need to wear less of a shoe Uh, If you go down to a more minimal shoe, you have to hit the ground better. And if you hit the ground better, you're turning over quicker. Uh, Barefoot grass running is really, really good for this. Now, you got to be careful with this kind of thing. This is a tool. This is a skill that you're working on. You're not trying to build up massive volume during doing this. But this is something I used to do for a bit, Kirk. We haven't talked about this very much, maybe once or twice, but I used to three times a week go and do barefoot running on grass or turf on soccer or football fields. And I would go until the very first indication that I was fatiguing mm-hmm. doing it. And then I'd put my shoes on and I'd run the rest of my 40 to 60 minute run. But I would try to mimic what I was doing barefoot in my shoes, but with the ability to handle it for longer durations. That kind of thing is maybe necessary. You may have to force this change to happen. I understand what you're going through. Coming off of knee surgeries, different things like that, your stride and your cadence changes. Mine slowed significantly. So you might just have to do a, a very aggressive intervention on this until it becomes natural again. And then also, just to double check that what you're feeling is right, film yourself running on a treadmill. Make sure you really are running in the 140s and 150s. Just double check it. But usually accelerometers are correct on watches.
0: That is very low. That's like galloping almost. It's so low.
1: Yeah, that'd be, you'd be spending so much time on the ground.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I,
1: God. But that makes sense, right? If you're coming off a knee injury, the easiest way for your body to move without taking impact is to like touch your heel and roll all the way through, like sink, bend your knee, sink in, kind of sag off to the side. And then it's like limping from one side to the other, back and forth. It's a logical progression for your body to try to hold you back from impact. Mm. It makes sense. You just can't run well that way.
0: Uh, I just think it's a he's a true candidate for like, if this is the sole focus holding you back, your biomechan- your efficiency is poor, your biomechanical efficiency is poor. And so you might be a candidate where we say, oh my God, do three minute intervals with one minute rest, maybe reverse it. Do one minute intervals with three minutes rest so you can just run fast. So you can get the mm. efficiency piece without your fitness getting in the way, but more like teaching your body. It's okay to turn over doing 60 seconds on three minutes off where you're either walking or jogging, like just one session a week where you're allowing yourself to run fast without any or like mm-hmm. any true um, you're not being held back by your fitness. Even if it's 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, uh, no more than three minutes, but lots of rest. And all you care about is running fast. Who cares about what we say about threshold and spending time with your heart rate up? What we're worried about getting your legs to move faster. And then I would absolutely start incorporating hill sprints. It's going to put you on your toes. It's going to create power and it might help you with your efficiency piece. That could be 15-second strides at 15% on the treadmill, something like that, just to teach you to power through something. Um, But I would, yeah, I would probably give that person the opposite approach of what I believe is training fundamentals just to see if that moves the needle at all. Just train the body, mind, nervous system, and everything to trust the knee, trust the process, trust the movement. That's what I would probably do.
1: How far is he post-ACL surgery?
0: Deleted the question already.
1: All right. Well, let's just say that you're far enough that you've completed your full rehab. Now, if you didn't complete your full rehab, the stage of rehab, the progression generally goes from slow, really stable movements to then moving into movements that are more sports specific. And so if you don't complete your full rehab, you've really only trained yourself to go very slow and under control with all your contractions. So that can be part of it that you're missing. It says a
0: couple of years later. I just, it was in my recently deleted, a couple of years later is what he said, whatever that means.
1: Okay. So what needs to happen, the capstone on rehab is returning to explosion. And so plyometric work really can be a key here. Not just for being able to be more explosive, but rewiring your body to be quick in movements. Mm -hmm. starting easy, starting with jump roping, moving on to light plyometrics. But anything that teaches your body to hit the ground, become balanced, and spring off the ground very, very quickly, that might be the final piece of this rehab that needs to happen. That in combination with the previous things we talked about, probably some form of that is your recipe to getting your quick cadence back.
0: Got to start somewhere, right? Don't worry about the fitness as much as worrying about the movement. Yeah. Yeah that's what i that's where my head goes uh off the top
1: maybe that's the first thing he should do he should go through and test all of these things out try barefoot running try metronome running try jump roping both legs single leg try some box jumps try some short 30 to six, 30 to 60 second intervals with long rest and see which one exposes him the most and feels the worst and then you just reverse engineer from there. All right, this is what I really suck at. Start doing that kind of thing and train to that and then move back upwards.
0: Yeah, everybody loves to do things they suck at. You're going to enjoy this training immensely.
1: <laughs> That's right. It's all about the end goal.
0: Um, my, I only have three left. Some more doubles in here for some reason. So, And I got to be Good done ass. at most in a half hour. I have a Facebook Marketplace message from the guy right now, but I'm afraid to open it, seeing if he's... Asking if he can come early. If he can't make it, I don't open it. I think you should do it right now. Not doing it. At nope, it. not doing it. I'm sp- I got to be done in a half hour, folks, because I'm selling my boat on Facebook Marketplace and somebody's coming to look at what it. What if it's a picture? Um, I hope it's a picture. All right. This is Micah Tuttle. Hey, you mentioned watching races while on the treadmill all the time. Can you start a YouTube playlist with some of your all time favorites?
1: It's going to be a lot of me. i tell you that <laughs> right a now. A lot
0: of old MVC throwbacks. <laughs>
1: yep I watch me
0: no you're asking yeah we should do that we should do it not
1: that but Micah's suggestion
0: we could sit down and put a compilation together maybe take an hour we could probably do it if we start thinking looking attaching the links it's not a bad idea I'd probably use that I
1: have all my saved videos I could
0: just I don't save any so I'd have to start back from scratch and think of what was iconic but yeah
1: you have to go look through your history Unless you have just a lot of stuff to dig through there.
0: How many different videos on YouTube do you watch per week? Running videos, racing videos. How many different ones? Because some are quick snippets, right? On
1: average, three, I'd say on average. But there might be some weeks where it's like 15 or 20.
0: Yeah, I'm probably in the 20 plus range because I'll watch the 1500 from six different events. And I'll be like, those add up to... Oh, that's like I watch true. then they're separate videos and they just add up, and it could be an amazing dog fight to the end, but like remembering what video that was for me would be tough on some of them
1: This would be a project this would be a weekend project for us
0: that's what I'm saying. it's going to take some time
1: You'd have to make a list of every race we've ever enjoyed and then go find the video It's a great it.
0: idea it's a great idea it is maybe one day when we're bored, we'll do that for you. How's that sound? And you have
1: to separate it into type.
0: What I find interesting, others might not find interesting. I don't know. I guess. Yeah. Like, i much rather watch a race versus a world record, and they can be very different. Like, I, I'd rather watch. Yeah. I'd rather watch.
1: Most world record races suck.
0: Yeah. I'd rather watch a pro athlete, a pro male run 405 in the 1500, which would be pedestrian. But it's a great race with the best 60 seconds of racing at the end versus watching somebody run 325 and breaking the world record. I would rather watch the race. Every time. How about you? Yeah, exactly.
1: You know how many many times I've rewatched David Rhodesia's 800-meter world record?
0: Zero. Twice. Oh, twice.
1: Okay. Centrowitz's 1,500-meter, one in the slowest time in like 40 years. Probably watched that 30 times.
0: Amazing race. So good.
1: Yeah. Seidel's Olympic medal, I'll watch that. But watching, you know, Kipchoge break, too, I've never rewatched it.
0: I've watched Galen Rupp medal a few times. That's a good one. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: Do you know Kirk that Brayden was born as Rupp and Farah were kicking down the home stretch in the Olympics? Specifically Farah.
0: Why would I know that?
1: I don't know if we'd ever talked about it. Lisa and I were watching the Olympics all day long and she finally gets down to like the birthing process and I'm just locked in and at one point I look up just look up like at the doctor or whatever and over his shoulder i see farah in full flight like 80 (laughs) meters from the finish line and i was so locked in it just registered that was happening and i was just like right back down to the birth but that's what was happening while brayden was born that's amazing i don't know what it means but it feels cool it
0: means it's destiny he's gonna be faster than you is what that means brayden has got a future yeah i mean that's that's a low bar Mm. Todd Solos. Hey y'all. Thanks again for everything you do. I found your podcast while well training for my first ultra last year and it has certainly helped me fall in love with running and OCR all the more. So I appreciate what you do. Thanks Todd. That said possible Q and a question. Most of the time for my long runs or back to back long days, I'm fueling before and during the run. However, every so often I like to take the second of a back to back day and run fatigued fasted and without fueling during it to make it both physically and mentally more challenging. Curious of your thoughts if I am leaving fitness gains on the table or it has some merit. An example of this, if it helps. Yesterday's was 60 minutes easy into 45 minutes of quality incline work on the treadmill. Then today I worked all morning and hit the trail for a two hour easy run around noon, which was done fasted and without fuel. For context, I have a beast scheduled between two ultras as of right now.
1: It's the kind of thing I would either do all the time or very, very infrequently. It would either be the goal of mine to become the most fat adapted athlete possible, or it would be the goal of mine to be ready and experience a race specific type of fatigue occasionally, but I wouldn't dabble. I would either go in on being fueled and rested for every workout to get the most out of every workout or get the most out of fat adaptation. I wouldn't mess around a whole lot in between, but that's just me personally.
0: I have a firm stance on this one. Um, if it involves quality, you care about your metrics whatsoever, 90 minutes or more, your ass better be fueling. I do not care what your excuse is. There needs to be glycogen in your system. However, and I do the same thing. If I'm going out for a two hour run at easy long run, traditional long run effort, I don't bring fuel. I don't need it. It's not going to affect what's going to happen to my cardiac output. I don't care about metrics. I'm looking to accumulate fatigue, and I don't think you're setting yourself back at all. But if I care at all about planning to elevate my heart rate and keep it there, speed metrics or anything, then I treat the session as it matters, and I fuel. But if you're going out there for easy miles, I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think you're gaining or losing anything, in my opinion, because metrics aren't mattering. Now, if they do, different story. Progression long run, yes, <laughs> fuel. Um, but that's just my take. Lindsay Webster, had a, it was either on this podcast or one that I listened to, she doesn't fuel ever. She goes up for three-hour run tra- hour training runs and doesn't take anything in. The only time she fuels is on race day. But she's, like, not fueling at all in her training runs. She says, I'm really bad about it, giggles. I should be better about it, giggles again. But I don't take anything when I'm out there. She seems to be doing fine. So mm-hmm. that, that kind of slapped a lot at you there but that's my general sentiment. Yeah.
1: I think you know by what happens afterwards. If it takes you days to recover from this, you're probably not doing yourself any help. If you're right back to training and feeling good, you're probably helping yourself. There are athletes who do every single workout fasted and underfueled mm-hmm. intentionally. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's why am I doing it and what's happening to me afterwards. If five weeks into this, I still feel like crap for four days after, and I really can't train well because of it, then whatever you're getting out of that session is probably not balancing out what you're getting missed in the other sessions. But yeah, if you feel great for two hours without it,
0: who cares? I guess, what do you feel like the next time or two you run? I guess that's something to think about energy come back or then do you feel like you're in a hole yeah good point anything else you want to add to that one
1: and on race day you're going to know right you're going to get to race day and do these events and you're either going to walk out of there feeling like i had unlimited energy i'm doing something right or i was lacking speed if you're lacking speed and power then you've got to fuel a little bit more and work on those things not that this person this this is starting to get non-specific to you at this point but uh but if you feel great then you're on the right path
0: I agree with that. Uh, this is the last one I have. Uh, Chewy Cortez. Hey Kirk, big fan of the podcast. I just just to pitch in the questions for the podcast. I just okay. My friend and I are training for the WTM 2023 in November, and we train six days a week for OCR. This is more or less the breakdown of our week. We start every Sunday with this workout training at zone two at the rower, air bike and ski. We start nine minutes on each station for max cows, then eight on each till we get to one each. It's about three hours. So we're spending three hours of cross-training at this point. Three hours of cross-training on Sundays. This is our longest workout. From there, we do mobility and recovery on Monday, Tuesday, lower body strength and upper body on Thursday. We do an eight to ten mile trail run on Wednesdays and Fridays, five to six mile run plus Yancey camp workout with compromised running. Do you guys think we should focus more on the running or that three-hour block is good enough. Well.
1: Was there a running component to that three-hour workout?
0: I'll read that again. Zone two with the rower, air bike, and ski. Where they rotate through each. So they do one 8- to 10-mile trail run, one 5- to 6-mile run, plus a Yancey compromise session, and then recovery mobility the other days. I mean, we can unanimously say. I, I, can I be you? Well, I was going to be myself here, but um okay (laughs) please no 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 do your best please do your best here i would love to hear it
1: well i'm gonna be more harsh and direct than i usually am i love it you're exercising under the guise of training you're not actually training and that that sounds really harsh but i I just want to be clear because sometimes it takes a sharp knife to cut through the fog that we place upon ourselves and we think we're doing something one way but we're really not You're training for OCR, which is running-based sport, and world's toughest, which is being on feet the entire time. And your single biggest event, you're not on your feet one time. Your single biggest event per week, you're not on your feet at all. You're only on your feet, it sounds like, moving twice per week. So I honestly think that you think you're training for something, but you're not. Which means you're exercising. And so if that makes you happy, that's fine. But if you're training for performance... It honestly needs an entire reworking of the system, in my opinion.
0: I love it. Can I do the bracket answer now? Yeah, please do. Okay. Well, here, here's what I think you're doing well.
1: <laughs> what shoes are you wearing? No, 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 no.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that matters the most. Um, uh, first of all, you're doing well. You're going to be covered probably on your obstacle proficiency. Like, so... In the one way that you are training specifically, you're doing a Yancey camp style compromised workout that will have you ready for transitions, your hands overhead, the things that like WTM are going to require in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, You're doing a good job of prioritizing that. We will say getting that in every week is definitely a box that's going to keep needing to be checked. So that I'm going to pat you on the back for from there. You're not doing a whole lot right other than getting your 8 to 10 mile run in as like a midweek long run. Um, The amount of damage you are going to take from being on feet, whether it's slow shuffle jog, walking, or running at WTM, you are in no way even close to prepared for the demands of that race. And you're going to be three hours in and wondering how you're going to go another 21 because you've never run for three hours, let alone 21 your hips, your calves, your Achilles, you're going to be in so far over your head that all you're going to be able to do is survive at best, at best, and most likely come out with a really bad injury from waste too much time on feet on a body that's not ready to handle it. So I guess I just turned into Kirk here. I can't help myself. Um, I I appreciate the time (laughs) you're spending, a three-hour... A three-hour long session is great. I want you doing some longer stuff like that once a week. So your time spent dedicated to training, probably not that far off. It's what you're doing with that time. And that's where you're missing the mark on getting race-specific for WTM. Time on feet, time on feet, time on feet. Um, Accumulating damage and fatigue so that when race day comes, it's not a new stimulus. And right now, it would be a brand-new stimulus to you. And I'm scared for the outcome. And I don't want you to be disappointed. I want you to be satisfied. And so... Um, we got to start running longer, and that should be a a run workout, for sure. Okay, go ahead, clean up, clean up what I just did.
1: Yeah, no, I we we almost never do this. We almost start. I mean, because we were kind of not kind of, we were very negative towards these gentlemen in our answer, and we don't direct this towards you. It's towards the, uh, maybe it is towards you. Well, but it's 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 for the purpose of eliminating like give you a little bit of frustration and embarrassment now in order to eliminate it on course. Cause we both coach people through WTM, you know, each year I prepare several people for world's toughest and each year you get to watch what happens. And the worst it's the worst race to show up to not truly ready. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so bad. And yet you can do well at this race if you can just move the entire time. And so more movement needs to occur. Like the the pieces of your plan aren't bad, but now instead of three stations that are non weight bearing and r- walking or running based, now you, now it's time to put a station in like running or stair stepper or incline hiking or even sled push and pull for one of those modalities. Start adding these things in, start moving impact into the equation because you have to be able to move on your feet for 24 hours you have to be able to be aerobically comfortable moving at a decent pace the entire time and you have to be able to handle the impact of everything you're doing and so we just don't want to get lost in the obstacle component it's so necessary to be ready for that and you're you're working on your engine but and the chassis has to be built for this race more than any other race in our sport.
0: Even when you've done all the training properly for this race, you're still not ready. Even the most prepared person that shows up at that start line still isn't ready. So do your best to just close that gap and to your defense guys, like the world of OCR now has been glorified with hybrid racing and mixed modality training. And we, I preach it as much as anybody because it served me very well for certain races that I'm doing. And if you were racing for an hour, maybe we could give you different advice. But you're not, and so I understand falling the trap to doing ski work and row work and all that stuff. I totally get it. But um, mm-hmm. you just got to think resistance to impact and what you're doing, you know, isn't enough. You don't get good at playing soccer by practicing football. Some call those do the same thing. I do not. Do oh. And right now you're right now you're practicing football when. The competition is soccer. You're going to get out on field and feel like you got your dick in your hands, as I call it, which is not a good feeling. Don't be that guy.
1: No. No. But you're not like lost. I use skier, rower, assault bike with the athletes I coach in order to fill out their workouts so they can do more work for more time under fatigue. But in between all of those, it's time to insert impact. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of sled work. We do a lot of hybrid work because I think it helps, but it is a second class citizen to the running or hiking or walking or whatever it is you're going to be using to get through course.
0: Yep. Um, we probably made these gentlemen feel silly enough. Um, I'm really glad you wrote in about it. I'm glad that you asked. I think that um, that even if you feel like, oh crap, like now what do I do? Like start running more, replace that cross training effort primarily with running um, gradually build up. Don't just switch right over and go to a three-hour run suddenly in its place. Like, start ramping up. You have a lot of time. You have enough time to write this ship. Nothing is lost. You have probably great engines from all this work. So you got... You're in a great situation. It's April. Mm-hmm. You don't race till November. Like, this is going to be great. You just got to probably start, you know, in the next month here. Be good.
1: Yeah, 30-some weeks. 28 to 30 weeks or whatever it is. There's a lot of time. And really, this isn't just doom and gloom. And I'm not just going to be a jerk and walk away. I, email me. I am happy to give you much more than we've done right here. If you have questions and you want more, like email me. I'm ha- let, let's have a conversation about this because I don't want to make someone feel bad and leave it. I want you not to feel this way on race day. That's what I want. I want to
0: help you. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on from that one to you said you had two questions and you've read me one. So do you want to put a bow tie on this?
1: I'm not going to do the other one. We can't do it fast.
0: What do you mean we can't do it fast?
1: You want to hear the question, Kirk? Yeah. Okay. Question or maybe future episode idea. Anatomy of a shoe. Hearing alarm bells go off right now in your brain. <laughs>
0: I'm hearing abort, 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 abort.
1: <laughs> I, have <an> upcoming, <laughs> I have an upcoming 50 mile race and have been reading shoe reviews and it sounds like a foreign language. Reading about all the parts of a shoe. I figured I'd put the idea out there in case anyone else has the same problem when looking for shoes. Thanks in advance. I think we should
0: do a whole episode on it.
1: I don't think we want to open this can of worms right now. Oh. You've got a boat to sell. You've got a Facebook marketplace message to check.
0: Okay. I think I think we could actually, that would, you know, I didn't even know that. I ran my whole life and I didn't really know this stuff until the last few years when I really got into OCR and, and, full-time coaching, like when I really started to learn shoes, like whatever I put on my foot, I was one of those, put it on final work. And then I started really in the last, I don't know, since I started OCR, 2017, 16, started really splitting hairs and it does make a difference. And all those things I didn't really know, like I didn't really know what a heel to toe offset was. I didn't know what stack height really meant. I didn't know what the upper labeling was or what different types of foam there was out there. Like I had no idea. So maybe we do an episode, give you, give you what you deserve, Bracken. It's important to keep the wife happy.
1: Wow. I feel like you just said you're about to take me to a real fancy dinner.
0: <laughs> where do you want to go? Isn't that the trick? You say, hey, we're going to dinner tonight. Guess where we're going. And then whatever they say, whatever they guess is where you take them because, you know, they want to go there. They're like McDonald's. And I'm like, yep, <laughs> we're going to McDonald's. can say it out loud,
1: Kurt. Yeah, That's right. I'm not a redneck. <laughs>
0: We don't eat at places like McDonald's. We have fancy places like Hardee's. All right.
1: Let's get to know each other just one little bit. If I said, Kirk, uh, I just got you a $1,000 gift certificate that's good at any restaurant worldwide, whatever the fanciest thing you want to eat, this is a special occasion for you so and Jess. Take time, her out, but where you want to use go. can
0: like 30 times at Chipotle.
1: One oh, time. <laughs> no, this is – I'm finding out what – if you were to go do your fancy dinner or eat the – the like your most treat-based meal, like this is the thing that is a special occasion. What would that look like to you?
0: I would say – can I do a quick Google search and figure out where this expensive place exists because I've never been to one? How am I going to spend a thousand?
1: Forget the expense. I'm just saying that it's. it okay. doesn't matter. You don't have to spend the thousand. It's okay. just you, – or you're – your last meal. Let's say that a little more
0: doom uh, and gloom. Capital Grill in Minneapolis, high-end steak joint. You can spend 100 bucks easy on your meal plus whatever frills inside that they make. I've been there a couple times. Best steak you I've ever had. And I would go to a traditional place or vice versa, we have a place called Travail next to where I work and it is a a US renowned restaurant that serves um that serves like nine courses in these very, you know, fun fancy ways and it's got a price tag, okay. but it's an experience and you go there and you spend three hours there and they take you back in the kitchen for part of it and it's like a night the food's amazing but it's a multi-course so i'm either gonna go traditional capital grill which is a classic steakhouse or i'm gonna do the yeah. opposite of that and go for the experience which would be travail took just there for valentine's day when when you had no idea that it cost what it cost we haven't been back since <laughs> i was like whoa <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Matter. <That laughs> I tried not to. I tried not to act appalled when the bill came. I remember trying to be like, "That's not a big deal. That, that's fine." But I was like, by the ride home, I was yeah. like, "I gotta be."
1: Not even look at it. It's for I gotta, you, Jess. I gotta be
0: honest, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> She's still stuck around. What about you? Where yeah. would you
1: go? But but what would your main course be? Like, what is the actual food? What's your main
0: course? Oh, let's get some wagyu beef steak seared just perfectly with a traditional baked potato loaded up with butter and sour cream, just loaded to the gills with that stuff and then
1: is it wagyu or wagyu? It was
0: wagyu, wagyu, whatever. Clearly I don't eat fancy places very often. It's on I don't redneck. Know. And then uh yeah. <laughs> simple. What? I don't I don't know what
1: a, That was a legit question. I wasn't trying to correct you.
0: I don't know. I thought it was wagyu. Maybe it's wagyu. Move on to you. What would you I don't have a good answer. I feel like my answer sucked. What about you?
1: No, no, no. That was good. Well, like deep down, I have this yearning for prime rib. At our wedding, I wanted prime rib. Good prime rib. I'd never had good prime rib. We got married at Geneva National, which is kind of like a hoity-toity place in Lake Geneva. It's a high-end golf club. And I did like the walk around with Lisa and say hi to people, the meet and greet. And I got back and they had taken my plate away. I didn't get any prime rib at my own wedding. Ugh. So then a few years in, uh, for an anniversary, we went up, man, I'm blanking on it, some sort of like Four Seasons Resort in northern Wisconsin. It's uh, where one of like the gangsters used to go to. It's like a little island that they can close off to the outside. I forget what it is. But we went up there for our, our anniversary and I got the prime rib there. I'm like, this is it. I'm getting my good prime rib. And every single bite, I chewed it for like five or six minutes and then I'd spit out all the gristle and fat and move to the next one. Every single bite was unswallowable. I would just chew it until the taste was gone. And then I didn't eat the second half of it. It was so bad. And so like deep down, I still have this yearning for this great prime rib experience. But the best place Lisa and I ever ate uh, was probably Geja's Cafe in Chicago it's this really like dimly lit intimate setting fondue place. Mm. You know, it's like you get three or five course meal and it's not cheap, but uh, every single bite I had there was one of those like, Oh my God, that's so good. Every single bite from the appetizer all the way through to the dessert. Every single bite was just like so, so flavorful and perfect. The vegetables, the meat, everything. It was just really, really good. That was another uh, anniversary.
0: Some charred Brussels sprouts on the side. A little crispy with a little bacon in it. I know that sounds probably too healthy for most, but that just... So good. ...winds me right up. All right. You know, you go to any middle-of-the-road to high-end-of-the-road Italian restaurant, slap a little cream sauce on some pasta, I'm happy. Like, no problem. No questions asked. You can't mess it up. Yeah. Just, like pizza like i'm gonna like it it's just like on what scale they you find there it must be noon where you're at i hear the bells
1: bells are starting up yeah i'm gonna like every steak anyone ever gives me yeah. i'm gonna like all the shrimp there ever were i'm gonna like sa- although uh salmon out uh my uncle bob runs um ivars out in seattle it's a pretty well established seafood seafood restaurant and chain and then they have this place called the salmon house right on the wharf and that was probably the best seafood I've ever had. It's just fresh caught, right on the sound. Uh there's salmon there. That that would be maybe my my backup to gauges. Okay. The salmon house in Seattle.
0: Is this your way of letting everybody know our birthdays are in a month and what they should send us? Is this your way? No
1: no no shoes. Running warehouse gift oh, certificates. Don't don't mess with food. Okay. Shoes. Shoes
0: shoes shoes. All right. Just making sure you weren't trying to wedge that in there. Or gauges. See? See? All right. Well, um, let's go see if I can wheel and deal this boat that I need to sell. Good luck. You never know how these Facebook Godspeed. marketplace meetups are going to go. You have no idea what you're getting yourself. No. It's going to be a guy that walks in with a pocket full of cash that's like 6000 less than I'm asking. He's going be like, take it or leave it. And I'll be like, that's 6000 less than I'm asking. He'd be like, I think it's a fair eh. deal. And I'd be like, leave my property right now before I eh. hit you. That's what I think is going to happen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my favorite part, though, is when both parties realize like oh it's not a weirdo and you're instantly bonded <laughs> yeah, totally. for life that in in unison with this relief that thank god it's it's someone like you
0: 100%. And you're
1: here to do a good business deal it's like you could instantly then be like hey you want to come on vacation with us and so they're like yeah yeah but let's 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 do let's make a deal on this waffle maker first
0: that reminds me when i sold my couch to a guy with two kids before i moved and we talked about endurance mountain biking for like an hour in my drive i was like can i have your number like this yep. is, yeah, Facebook messaging isn't going
1: to work moving forward. I get it. Uh, last bike I bought that happened.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: They had a little farmette. Within like five minutes of being there, he's giving me a tour of his salsa fat bike collection. And the kids are out playing on the swing set and fe- trying to chase the chickens and the wife's lead them around. And <laughs> like we're instantly like, oh, you bike, you run, let's do this thing, man.
0: I love it. Well, hopefully that's what it is.
1: All right. Go sell it. All right,
0: man. Thanks for listening, guys. We got all our questions gone other than the one Bracken read. So if we missed yours, I'm sorry. Send it again or maybe we have yet to open it. But um, all right. Tuesday it is. All right. Ciao for now. Ciao for now.